time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord Will Provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Uh, It's great to have Julian Dykeman preaching for us this morning. Um, Julian's been living in Christchurch for the last year. And um, before that was studying in Geelong at RTC. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be back here. I'll I, I tell you what, the sense of deja vu is uh, quite incredible. Uh, but it's nice, uh, nice to see all your faces. You look roughly the same. Um, roughly. Maybe, maybe, a, maybe a little less hair, uh, a little more, bit more weight. Uh, but that's just me. I don't, I don't know about you guys. Uh, uh, but no, it is nice uh, to be back. I apologise in advance for any unusual pronunciation. Uh, I've spent a year learning Kiwi, and now I have to unlearn it abruptly. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully we can muddle through, even with the wrong vowels. Uh, before we look into this uh, wonderful passage, how about I just lead you in a time of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is such a wonderful gift to us. 
We thank you for it. We thank you for stories like this which teach us so much about how you work and the wonderful things you have done for your people. Lord, as we study these verses now, we pray that you would help us to put aside distraction, to put aside any tiredness we might be feeling, and instead to hear your voice. Father, may your spirit speak clearly to us. May you encourage us. May you challenge us. And may you build us so that by the end we might come to love you all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles handy uh, as we work our way through these verses this morning. It'll be good if you can refer back to them uh, as we do so. Now, in World War II, uh, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill was forced to make a very difficult choice. Uh, British Secret Service uh, broke the Nazi code and they found out that the city of Coventry was going to be bombed. Now, that left uh, Winston with a very difficult choice. Does he, on the one hand, evacuate the city and save hundreds of lives, but in doing so, let the, uh, let the Germans know that they've broken the code and possibly risk more lives in the future? Or does he take no action, knowing that many people are going to die in this city, but possibly many more will be saved in years to come? It's a tough choice. You've got to wonder what you would do in that situation. But ultimately, uh, Winston had to choose, and in the end, he followed the second choice. He allowed the city to be bombed, but in doing so, kept reading the German messages and possibly saved many lives in the rest of the war. Now, where we find Abraham in Genesis 22, we find him in an even more difficult choice than Winston had to face in the war. On the one hand, Abraham has the God who has promised him so much, who has done so much for him for many years. But on the other hand, he has his only son, Isaac, whom he loves. God, for for many years now, has been faithfully, has been surely keeping his promise, been with Abraham, and has given him so much. Gradually, God's covenant with him has been being fulfilled. Isaac was a living proof of this. But now, in one abrupt and, and very sudden command, all of this seems soon to be taken away. Offer your son as a burnt offering. Yet, in the midst of this terrible and, and, and quite incomprehensible situation, what we find is a story that offers us wonderful uh, hope, wonderful assurance. Because in the midst of this very dark and very difficult choice, God provides. Time and time again, God provides. Everything seems lost, but again, God provides. And so we're going to work our way through this story this morning. We're going to see exactly how God's provision comes to Abraham and how it comes to us as well. The first thing we see uh, in verses 1 to 8 is that God provides a test. Now, in the NIV, it says uh, sometime later there in verse 1. Uh, literally, it's after these things. that The author of Genesis is saying, remember what Abraham has been through. Remember his story so far. Remember all that's happened. Remember how God has been with him. Remember how God has watched over him and been so good to him and blessed him and guided him. Remember the promises he made to him in Genesis 12, that he covenanted to him in Genesis 15. 
Remember how these promises are now heading to fulfilment, all in his son Isaac. Remember this, but then read on, because abruptly it seems to take a turn for the worst. Now as readers we have quite an advantage over, over Abraham, because we can read verse 1. He didn't have that. We can see that it says there, uh, sometime later God tested Abraham. So we know the rest of this chapter is a test. But Abraham didn't know that. We get a sneak peek into God's decision making. We know what's going on. But Abraham is kind of in the dark. Try to put yourself in his shoes. Try to think what it would have been like for him at this time. Uh, One day, one night, he hears a voice. Abraham, God speaks to him. Here I am, he replies. And God says to him, verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now just pause there for a moment. See what the author is trying to get us to notice. Your son, your only son, Isaac, your son whom you love. I'm trying to picture Abraham's mind here. This is Isaac we're speaking about. His only beloved son, the child for whom he's waited for so long. He was promised at 75 years old that he would have a son. 25 years he waited to see that day come, to hold his child in his hands. Now, 12, 13 years later, Isaac is a teenager. He hasn't spent much time with him. My son, God, really? I remember speaking to a man who had waited uh, many years, a number of years, to have children. And finally, finally they had a son, and he was holding his son in church. And this story was read. And he said, I looked down at my son, and he said, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done what Abraham had to. I couldn't have given him up. But remember then who Isaac is. Because he's not just this beloved son. He's not just this only child. Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the one, the heir of the covenant. He's the one to whom this everlasting covenant that's been promised to Abraham will go to and will go through. See, God has promised many wonderful things to Abraham, but all of them hinge on Isaac. I mean, what good is promised land without a people to fill it? What good is blessing without a nation to receive it? And how can a nation of none be a blessing to the whole world? How could Isaac be killed when so much is riding on his life? Now Abraham's Abraham's mind must have been churning by this point. He must have been working this over. Uh, It says he rose early... It's hard uh, to imagine him sleeping much that night. But what does he do? Well, he keeps going. Does he say anything? Does he question? No. He goes. He hears God's command, though it makes little sense, though it doesn't seem to fit with what he knows about God, how God has dealt with him in the past. He hears, he obeys, and he goes. Uh, They set off. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. See, three days he has journeyed. Three days he has been wrestling with this command, turning it over in his mind, wondering what's going to happen, how this is going to work. But now 
he sees this mountain looming in the distance. It kind of hangs over him. He knows this is the mountain he's going to have to climb. This is the mountain he's going to have to kill his son upon. But he continues, verse 5. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now we get the sense that Abraham's kind of keeping his cards close to his chest. He doesn't speak about what's going to happen. He doesn't speak of what he's going to do. He says, we're going to go, we're going to worship. He even seems to suggest that the two of them are going to come back together. And yet off they go, the two of them together, climbing this mountain. Now Isaac, though, has twigged to an issue. He's picked up on a problem here. Uh, He's probably in his early teens. He's not uh, oblivious. He's kind of figured out what's going on. And look what he says in verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, would Isaac have suspected what's going on? Would he have known what might be coming? Well, it's hard to know. We don't say, we don't read of it. But what we do know is Abraham's response. Look at verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide. What will it look like? Abraham probably didn't know. What was he expecting? Well, again, the text just doesn't tell us. But we read later in the Bible, in Hebrews 11... He, that is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. You see, Abraham was going, trusting that God would provide. Had he ever seen God do something like this? Well, no. Had he ever heard of something like this happening? Again, no. But he still went trusting Trusting and knowing that God would indeed provide all that he needed. God will provide. Abraham had this firm hope that even though if he had to go through this awful command, even then God will still somehow provide. And so he continues. He continues in obedience, walking to the top of this mountain. But remember what we saw right back in verse 1. Remember that God is testing Abraham. He is testing his faith, testing whether he truly believed that God will fulfill his promises, even in this most impossible of situations. Because remember, this is, this is no small test that Abraham has been put through. Uh, way back in Genesis 12, when we first read of Abraham, God says, go, and Abraham went. He listened, he obeyed, and in doing so, he burnt all of his bridges behind him. He left everything behind. But now, here in Genesis 22, Abraham is again listening and obeying, even though it seems like he's going to have to burn all his bridges in front of him as well. And yet still, still he trusts, still he obeys, still he knows God will provide Just as he had, he somehow surely will, even now. Now sometimes, sometimes God's provision 
is a test. Sometimes God gives tests to his people. We read in Exodus 20, uh, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. It's not the first, nor is it the last time that God tests his people. He tests that they might be rid of sin. He tests that they might grow in love and obedience. He tests that they might come closer to him and enjoy a closer relationship with him. See, God tests his people, not because he's cruel, uh, not because he's sadistic or somehow mean. He tests because he loves. That's why he says in Deuteronomy 8, he might humble and test you to do you good in the end. You see, God's tests are part of his good provision for his people. But what's more, God not only provides tests for his people, but he also provides the means for which they can be endured. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted or tested, it's the same word, beyond your ability, but with the temptation or test, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And as we continue on in the story of Abraham, that's exactly what we see God doing. Because the story rolls on, uh, Abraham and Isaac, as we read in verse 8, they continue on, uh, two of them together, uh, probably in silence. And you can imagine with every step that Abraham takes, the tension that must have been rising within him. His heart racing, his palms sweaty, perhaps light-headed, jittery, because he knows that every step he takes is a step closer to the place where he's going to have to put his son to death. And finally, verse 9, we reach the place. Let me read it. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Finally, they reach the place and the narrator kind of pauses. He slows time down and he records every detail He wants us to see the tension and feel the hurt that must have been in Abraham. Abraham builds the altar. He carefully arranges the wood upon it. He binds his son. He lays his son on top of the altar, on top of the wood, prepared for the sacrifice. Now we get the impression here that uh, Isaac is going along with Abraham. Uh, Remember he was a teenager perhaps. Abraham certainly was well over a hundred Uh, If he'd wanted to run away, he could have. There was no chance Abraham was going to catch him. But he doesn't. He trusts his dad. He allows himself to be tied, to be laid upon the altar. And so Abraham, his son prepared, lying on the altar before him, reaches out his hand and he takes hold of the knife and he raises the knife above his head. He braces, he looks down, his son is lying there before him, helpless, vulnerable and waiting. Abraham braces for the strike. He lines up his spot and just as he goes to thrust, Abraham, Abraham, this voice yells from heaven and he replies, here I am. And the voice says, do not lay your hand on the boy. Can you feel the relief that Abraham must have felt at that point? 
that, that surge of adrenaline, that emotion at this near miss. And what does the angel say? Verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. See, the test, the test for Abraham is over. He's passed. Abraham fears God. He trusts him. He obeys him overall, even to the point of being willing to give up his only son. Now, God wasn't surprised by the outcome of this. God knew that this would happen. But it was here, in this event, in this mountain, that Abraham's faith was tested, that it was proved that his fear of God, as the angel says, was confirmed above all things. In verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. He looks around, he looks behind and there just behind him is a ram. It's caught, it's ready for the sacrifice. And so he does. He offers it up, as the narrator says, instead of, in the place of his son Isaac. There's still a sacrifice, but the ram stands in for his son. It takes his place on this altar. The ram is the substitute. It took Isaac's place, it took what he was supposed to receive, and it died instead of him, in his place. But clearly, as Abraham recognises, the ram is God's provision. Uh, It's not an accident that it's there, it's not just some chance happening. And Abraham recognises It is God's provision. That's why he names the place as he does. The Lord will provide. And as we read in verse 14, to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Just as Abraham had trusted back in verse 8, God had now done. He had provided, just as Abraham had said he would. It was the last minute, sure. It was miraculous, absolutely. But nonetheless, God provided. God gave the ram as a substitute instead of Isaac. And you can imagine the relief of Abraham. His son has been saved because God has provided this substitute in his place. But if we cast our minds a little further afield, we can imagine the confidence that this story must have then given to Isaac's descendants, to the people of Israel. 600 years later, as they stood on the border of the promised land, And here, Moses saying, remember, remember this story. The path ahead of you is dark and dangerous. Many challenges lie ahead. But remember, remember what God has done. Remember what he did for Isaac, your father. Remember how he's done similar for you also. Because God also provided a substitute for Isaac's descendants, for the people of Israel. He provided a substitute lamb for them. Perhaps you remember the story in Exodus, the Passover night, when they escaped from uh, from Egypt. God then protected their firstborn sons by the blood of the lamb, which they sprinkled on their doorways. And from that time on, all of their firstborn sons were to be redeemed. God said to them in Exodus 13, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. How? By sacrificing an animal in their place instead of them as a substitute for them. 
In fact, the whole of the sacrificial system, written of in so many pages and so many chapters, was to remind them of this, that God saves by allowing and by providing a substitute for his people, an animal. God saves them. He gives them life by providing a substitute to stand in for them. And thus this passage becomes an enormous encouragement for us too. Because as God saved Isaac, as he saved his people Israel, so too he saves today by providing a substitute. And so when we turn to the New Testament, we read that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, innocent and silent. When John the Baptist saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because what did Jesus do? Well, Romans 5 For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. See, Jesus died for us, in our place, instead of us, as our substitute. He took the punishment, death, that our sin deserved. He subbed in. He took our position. He was our sub, so that we could be saved, so that we could have life. Jesus is the lamb that God provided. See, God was the one who went through the anguish that Abraham got a taste of. God went through the process of giving up his beloved son as a sacrifice. On the mountain of the Lord, God did provide. We look back at Easter and we remember that. But there was no substitute then because Jesus already was the substitute taking the place of you, taking the place of me. See, God has already provided a substitute for you and for me. That is his son, Jesus Christ. All who believe in him, all who are in him by faith, have no longer any fear of punishment, of wrath, because he has already stood in and has taken all those things for us. Jesus is our substitutionary, sacrificial lamb. He died for us, he died instead of us so that we could have life, so that we could go free and so that we could have peace with God. Now we might think that the story would end there, but it doesn't. Uh, the test is over, Abraham has passed, his faith is proved, his trust in God is strong. But God has another word for Abraham. He graciously speaks again. Look at verse 17. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. See, God speaks again and he reiterates He repeats the promises that have been the theme of Abraham's life so far. He spoke them when he first met Abraham in Genesis 12 and he speaks them again in Genesis 22 when he last speaks with Abraham. See, what God has promised, what he has covenanted, even before Isaac was born, he now confirms, he now re-speaks to Isaac who has figuratively been raised from life. God speaks these promises again and he provides assurance that he will keep them even now, especially 
after what's happened. Now there's some differences here, some differences to how he's spoken of them before. Because God elaborates, he, he elaborates on all that he's promised and he makes the promises even stronger. He's saying, I will surely bless you, verse 17. I will surely multiply your offspring. He's saying, I will really, really do this. Uh, if you've possibly doubted before, don't doubt anymore because I am certainly going to do as I promised. He adds a new description of, Abraham's, of Isaac's descendants. They're going to be now as the sand that is on the seashore. Abraham, you're not going to be able to count them. They're going to be huge in number. Now, your offspring aren't just going to take the land, again, verse 17, but they're going to possess. They are going to uh, possess the cities of their enemies. They're going to defeat them. They're going to own them. See, more than any other time, God is putting his promises beyond any doubt. He is confirming them. He who has just provided a substitute, who has just saved the heir of the promise, is now confirming them once and for all. But his confirmation is made even stronger by his first words in verse 16. God says there, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. I swear by myself. That is an incredible statement. No other time in Genesis does God stop and swear an oath. So not only is he repeating these promises, he is swearing by himself to keep them. Our later generations saw the assurance that this gave. At the end of Genesis, it was Joseph's confidence that his descendants would surely get the land because, he says, he, that is God, swore it to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. When Moses speaks to the Israelites in Exodus and uh, reminds them of what's to come, he says to them, it's not if, it is when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give to you. And so the writer of Hebrews picks up this theme and he says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Uh, perhaps, perhaps you remember how it is in primary school. You know, you want to really convince someone. You want to uh, tell them what, what you're going to say is certainly true. So what do you do? Well, you make uh, a pinky promise, don't you? You know, you, you say that this is a pinky promise. You, you lock your pinkies, and everyone knows uh, a pinky promise can't be broken. It, it's absolutely binding. Uh, I'm not sure what the consequences are. But you can't break a pinky promise. But you see, the, <laughs> it's maybe a bad comparison, but the confirmation that God is giving here in Genesis 22 is far beyond even a pinky promise. Because when God swears an oath, it is truly binding. It will surely happen. In 2 Timothy 2, we read, God remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. There is no greater confirmation than God swearing an oath by himself. Than the holy, almighty, righteous God who created everything, saying, I swear an oath to you by myself. I will do this. I will surely do this. How gracious God is. Not only has he made these promises in Genesis 12, 
Not only has he covenanted them in Genesis 15, not only does he confirm them in Genesis 17, but now he swears to keep them in Genesis 22. And so he did. And so he is doing. Uh, To Isaac's descendants, the nation of Israel, these promises were received. They received the land. They received blessing. They became a great nation. But then they rebelled. And ultimately they lost these promises. But was God unfaithful? Well, of course not. And so Paul writes of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 1, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. See, all of God's covenanted promises, all of these promises made here, even in Genesis 22, find their yes in Jesus. How? Well, Paul writes in Galatians 3, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, Jesus is Abraham's true offspring. As the one who is truly and perfectly obedient to God in all things, he is the one who received all of these promises. And through him, all of the nations of the earth receive the blessing that God had promised. How? Well, as Paul writes in Galatians 3, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, if you are in Jesus by faith, then you become a recipient of these promises. You become an heir. See, in Jesus, we receive all these covenanted promises that God made so long ago. We taste them here. And we find true fulfilment when he returns again. See, friends, Jesus Christ is our assurance. He is the assurance for you. He is the assurance for me. He is the one who is the substitute provided by God that we might be saved, that in him all the covenant promises be fulfilled. He is the true heir of Isaac and of Abraham, in whom we, united with him by faith, receive all these promises and everlasting blessing. He is our great assurance. We read in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, just as God surely gave Jesus to be our substitute, so surely will he in him grant to us all things, the fulfilment of all his promises. And so you and me, we ought to be confident in God's provision. We ought to be confident because Jesus is our assurance, given to us by God. In him, he is providing, fulfilling the covenant promises even now, and even now holding them in the future for you and for me. So when we face the situations of life, whether they be good or bad, when we face tests or trials of many kinds, which we will, we ought to hold on to these promises and hold on to the assurance that is Jesus. We ought to know that he is our guarantee. Even now, perhaps you are facing events you can't understand. Perhaps you are going through things which are just a mystery to you. 
They don't seem to make any sense. Perhaps a family member is terribly ill. Perhaps your financial security is non-existent. Perhaps your relationships are just going from bad to worse. Perhaps your health is failing. Daily you're facing hardship and you just cannot see why. Well, be assured, God has provided absolute confidence, even to you, in the promised fulfilment of all his promises in his son Jesus. We go through hardships, we go through doubts, we go through struggles now. But Jesus is our assurance. In him the promises are made perfectly sure. Nothing can take them away. Just as God has provided in him, so surely he does provide, so surely he will provide when he comes again. God has done it, he has sworn it, and he has shown it. And his son Jesus is our guarantee. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the confidence we can have in Jesus. We thank you that you provided him as our substitute, that in him we might be saved, that in him we might have life, life eternal with you. We thank you that in him we have the surety that you are truly fulfilling all your promises to us. Father, you know that it is easy for us to doubt, to be distracted by the circumstances of our life and to take our eyes off this surety. And so we pray that you would lead us back, that you would show us clearly again Jesus and that even in the midst of our deepest, darkest hardships, we would see him and know that you provide and that in him our futures are sure. It's in his name we pray. Amen.